Remain standing for our gospel lesson from John chapter 20. Submit yourself to the word of God, to the gospel of our God. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter, and came to the tomb first, and he, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw, and he believed." For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, open our eyes today to see your wondrous truths. Give us ears to hear and hearts to do, wills to do what you have commanded. But first, hearts to believe what you have done For us in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, and what you will do for us in the future because of that same death and resurrection. Help us by the power of your spirit, the power of your comforter. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. That line comes from an old prison movie. The character who says it has been in prison for many years and he's taught himself to stop hoping. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. The character is commenting on how risky it is for someone who is sentenced to life in prison to try to find hope or meaning in this life sentence. Holding out for hope in a situation like this can drive a man insane. This man had already been in prison for years and he had experienced the pain of hoping that he, maybe that he might get free, but short of that, hoping to find meaning and purpose in his life sentence. And his hopes were continually dashed, leaving him in an even deeper sense of hopelessness than he had before, leading to more depression, more despair. And so he'd come to the conclusion that hope is a dangerous thing. It's too dangerous to bother with it. It'll drive you insane. Well, you you don't have to be a prisoner serving a life sentence to have experienced something like this sentiment. Maybe some of you have given up 
on hoping, at least in certain areas. By the time we get to chapter 20 of John's gospel, Jesus' followers have almost reached the point of insanity. For centuries, the Jews had been waiting and hoping for their Messiah to come. They had been eagerly awaiting for that Davidic king to rise up, to conquer Israel's enemies, subdue the nations of the earth, to set up the kingdom in Jerusalem, and to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament. Followers of Jesus, in particular, had become convinced that Jesus was this guy, and they had poured all their expectations, all their hopes, into this one man who was supposed to be the long-awaited king, Messiah. And yet now, on, on, on what we now call Good Friday, their hopes had been dashed. Now this Jesus guy is dead. It appears that he's maybe possibly just like all the other would-be messiahs whose lives ended in death, sometimes crucifixion. He's been dead for going on three days. Their hopes had proved to be a dangerous thing. And to add insult to injury, when Mary Magdalene got to the tomb... On, on that Sunday morning, Jesus' body wasn't even there. Someone had taken it. Apparently, maybe someone had stolen it. It's the only logical conclusion, only reasonable conclusion. And now, she couldn't even give Jesus a, a proper royal burial. She doesn't even get to mourn the death of the man who had cast out demons from her, the man who had given her new spiritual life, the man who had made her clean and forgiven her sins, the man whom she still believed at some level was God's long-awaited Messiah and thus deserving of all the, the burial spices, the honor. It's difficult for us to empathize with Mary at this point because we know there's a happy ending. and We can't get away from knowing how the story ends. We even read it today. <clears throat> so there, there's, a, there's good news on the horizon. But it's crucial for us that, that we meditate for just a moment on just how low, disappointed Mary is right now. She and the rest of the disciples are at the bottom of that valley of the shadow of death that David talks about. Their hopes had been deeply and thoroughly dashed. <clears throat> and yet, as those of us who believe the gospel have come to know and experience even at a personal level, resurrection joy always comes after the valley of the shadow of death to those who wait on the Lord. New life is possible on the other side of death for those who cling to the cross of Christ. Even when they don't even know exactly what that means or where they are in this story and what's going on and what God's going to do. That was certainly their situation. 
Deny yourself and take up your cross every day. Why? Because when you die to yourself and live for God, when you willingly walk through life's trials while trusting in Christ, even when it doesn't make sense, even when the world's perspective, uh, from the world's perspective, there's just no reason to keep believing. When you lose your life instead of desperately trying to find it and cling to it, there's always resurrection waiting on the other side of that kind of death, disappointment, denial of self. Usually we don't know what the resurrection looks like. We don't know how God exactly is going to bring resurrection joy. Oftentimes we can't even imagine that it's possible how our situation could be resurrected at all. That was, has anybody been in that situation more so than Mary and the disciples? It seems impossible. Sometimes, sometimes we may even wonder how we could be happy, joyful ever again. I don't have the answers to all of our questions, all of my questions even. Most of my questions I don't have answers to along those lines. How, how is God going to resolve this or that? I, I, don't, I can't tell you exactly how God is going to rectify this broken situation or that one. I, I don't know exactly how God plans to resolve all the tension in this fallen creation and make everything right so that it glorifies him and is for our good. I can't tell you how it will happen or what it's going to look like in your particular situations. But I can tell you this. Your situation is no more hopeless, no more confusing, no more impossible, no more despairing than Mary Magdalene's. The only way Mary's situation could be resolved is if Jesus came back from the dead. And and that was surely impossible. It's hard for us to let that point really sink in. Because again, we know this story, and we, therefore we think it's unlike our story, our situation. We, we know God has already done the impossible. Mary, Mary just doesn't know it. But Jesus had already been raised from the dead. The good news was already there for her to know and believe, trust in, to find comfort in. She's about to find out, though, and when she does, she's going to come to life as well. She's about to discover that Jesus has emerged victorious from the grave. And when she discovers this, she herself will emerge victorious from the valley of the shadow of death. It won't be her last valley in her life on this earth. But God will give her, Jesus is about to give her resurrection joy on the other side. She's about to experience the resurrection that comes on the other side of death. She's about to find out that dying with Jesus is the pathway to joy. She's about to discover firsthand for herself in a very, very personal way that wrapping up all your hopes 
in Jesus is always worth it. It always pays off, so to speak. It always brings us what we talked about in Sunday school today in the adult class and in the youth, that comfort, that consolation that is our only consolation, our only comfort, even if you can't imagine how that is going to happen. Joining up with Jesus and his future, binding yourself to the name of Christ and his eternal kingdom, it comes with promises and blessings that far outweigh those valleys that Jesus will inevitably take you through for your good, for your sanctification on the way to resurrection joy. Putting your hopes in Jesus will not lead to insanity, but it is dangerous. It is risky business. Committing every nook and cranny of your heart to Jesus feels dangerous. Following Christ doesn't always feel safe and secure as we would like to feel. Submitting every sector of your life to Christ, your your family, your vocation, your money, your retirement, your recreation, your time, your hobbies, your ambitions, your identity, your beliefs, your resentments, your longings, your children, every decision, your entire life, submitting everything to Him and putting all your hope in Him, it is kind of a, it, it feels like a dangerous thing. You will die more than once. You will go through more than one valley when you do that. The Christian journey is not always easy on the heart. But it is full of joy. And it climaxes in resurrection joy. That's the, that's the end of the story that we're going to meditate on a little bit today. It did for Jesus and it will for you. Today's sermon is going to be a little different than you're used to. Normally, I just go through a passage verse by verse, read it, make observations, comments, applications. Today is going to be more of a big picture, topical sermon on, on the resurrection, its implications. We're going to, we're going to make some overarching you know, applications, observations, and look at the implications of the resurrection of Christ and what it means for us and our resurrection in the future. So... But don't worry, if it, next week we'll come back and, and go through the passage in a more line-by-line way, uh, starting in verse 1. At the end of chapter 20, John says that he writes these things so that we may believe that, that the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. Look at the end of chapter 20 if you're interested. He writes so that we may believe Jesus Christ is the Davidic Son of God. And that by believing, we may have life in his name. Which means he's more than just a Davidic Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God as well. And John wants us to experience the resurrection joy, the life and the joy that Mary experienced when she discovered later on that Christ had risen. But Mary isn't the first one to believe 
in the resurrected Jesus in this passage who are the first ones. Now, she's the first one to see Jesus in the flesh, in the new flesh, later on in the passage. But verse 8 says that after John followed Peter into the tomb, he saw and believed. Why? Why didn't Mary believe when she saw that John did, uh, John and Peter did when they saw, at least John did, and believed? And, and this belief is belief in the resurrection. If you look at the context here, it's a belief in the resurrection. They didn't understand it before, it says, but now, having seen, he believes. What did he see? So we know up to this point, the disciples had been too dense to realize that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. We would have been right there with them in their their denseness. Even though Jesus had told them point blank on numerous occasions. But now they know. So I I want you to envision what they saw and why they believed when they went into the tomb. Verse 6 says that the linen cloths that Jesus was wrapped in were lying there. So that's, a, that's one clue already. Not decisive, but you know, if he was stolen, why would they un, you know, take the time to unwrapping before they care? You, know, you can do that later. This is, they had to get in and out. But what really got their attention is what we read in verse 7. The face cloth, the veil that Jesus' head had been wrapped in, wasn't just lying with the other linen cloths. It had been folded up neatly in a place by itself. It's not with the other one. It's in a different spot, and it's folded up. And this was the clear evidence to Peter and John that the body of their Lord had not been stolen. Something else is going on. If you were trying to steal the body... You wouldn't take the time to, to unwrap the linen, much less take time to fold it, to fold one of the things, and then put it meticulous, meticulously on the stone slab. This folded face cloth is a striking image. So just imagine you're inside the tomb, and you, and you look down, and there's undeniable evidence that something supernatural has, has happened to Jesus' body. Indeed, evidence that he's alive caused them to believe. They didn't believe the resurrection. Now he sees and believes. So recall that agony and that despair we were talking about uh, that, that you've been through if you're, if you're these disciples. And then imagine how this discovery would just warm your heart to understate it. Let it warm your heart. Let it encourage you. Let it fill you with that same kind of joy even now. Don't get too used to the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Remind yourself that this story about Mary and Peter and John coming to the empty tomb on this Sunday morning in April of A.D. 30 really happened. It's it's just as real a historical event as, as your drive to church this morning, except a whole lot more significant. The event took place in in time and space, just outside the city of Jerusalem, in fact, in the land of Israel, on a day when the sun rose in the east and set in the west, the same sun we see every day. These details about the linen cloths 
invite us to share in the excitement and joy, the wonder and the newfound hope that flooded the hearts of these disciples as they saw the glorious and tidy little message from God folded up all by itself. Remember, John wrote these things that we, you and I, might believe and share in that resurrection life that Jesus poured into the disciples who got to see all of these things with their own eyes. But here's the point. Here's the point. It's not just Peter and John who get to see this. We get to see it. That's that's what John is wanting us to do is to see. We get to see by means of God's trustworthy words here in John 20. Through God's infallible account of this situation, of this story, this event, recorded and preserved throughout the ages for you, for us, for God's people, you get to participate in that wonder and excitement of the first Easter morning. Back in chapter 11 of John's gospel, we were told about another death and resurrection, that of Lazarus. And there, John made a point to tell us about the linen cloths that were wrapped around the hands and the feet of Lazarus and, and the face cloth around his head. There, there's a, uh, he's purposefully comparing or really contrasting here these two sets of, of linen cloths. The interesting difference between Lazarus's linen cloths and the linen cloths of Jesus is that Lazarus, even after he was raised from the dead, he was, he was unable to unwrap himself, remember. John eleven forty four says that he was bound by the linen, and Jesus had to tell his sisters, you know, go unbind him and let him go. John 20, however, Christ's linens don't bind him at all. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was still a mere mortal still susceptible to death, not even able to unbind himself from death's linen cloths. In fact, we're reminded of his vulnerability to death in the very next chapter, in chapter 12. Remember, we find the chief priest planning to put Lazarus to death. His testimony is a problem. And the idea is he could, he can, they could do that. Lazarus was still part of the old creation. He hadn't received his resurrection body, the one that he'll get in the new creation when Jesus returns. Lazarus was raised, but he would die again, and he did die again. And his body is still in the ground waiting to be raised on the last day. Christ's resurrection, on the other hand, is a new creation reality, something completely different. His resurrection body is not susceptible to death. Jesus didn't simply come back from the dead. He traveled through death, and he came out the other side victorious over it. Our resurrected Lord is the first fruits of something new, the new creation, as Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Paul calls the risen Jesus the heavenly man, the man from heaven. He's got a body that's 
Not from this world, but from the world to come. Now, on the one hand, Jesus' resurrection body is the same body that his mother Mary gave birth to. It's the same body that died on the cross. And it has the scars to prove it. So there's a continuity there. Same body. It's the same body, in one sense, that was born in this original old creation. On the other hand, there's a discontinuity we have to recognize. The risen body of Jesus has been transformed into the physical material, the, fit, the substance of the new creation. And notice I said physical material of the new creation. The, the resurrection body of Christ is just as material, just as physical, just as bodily as the body he had before he was resurrected. Maybe even more so. You, you, you could make the case that his body is even more physical now, more material than ever before. I've probably shared this with you before, what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said the reason Jesus could pass through the walls, as we're going to see in, in later in John, in John 20, is not that he was ghostly or immaterial, so he could just sort of go through, It wasn't that his new body was less material than the walls. No, it's exactly the other way around. You see, an iron rod can pass through water with ease, not because it's less dense than the water, but precisely because it's denser than the water. C.S. Lewis suggests that the stuff of the new creation, the material of the new heavens and new earth, the physical substance that Christ's raised body is made out of is denser and more real. And this is his way he's not trying to be scientific about this so much as he's just trying to get us to see, one, that there's a physicality to this new world and there's a sense in which it's even more real, more substantial. When Jesus returns to earth and makes all things new like himself, he'll also at that point reunite your body and your soul. Today we studied in the first question of the catechism that Jesus owns us in body and in soul. And and he's going to preserve both. You'll receive a new body that's just like his. In 1 John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when he comes back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And on the same day you receive your resurrection body, in that same moment, Jesus will also resurrect the entire cosmos. Did you know that? Scripture says uh, he'll burn up the old creation with fire and then raise it from the dead, as it were, creating a new heavens, a new earth. Let me read you what Peter says about this at the end of 2 Peter Chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Both the earth and the works that are done in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which... The heavens will be dissolved, being set on fire, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Nevertheless, according to his promise, 
We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter there is addressing the, the skeptics who are saying, hey, what about this promise of the Lord's return? You know, Jesus said he was going to come back. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been decades. Um, and he's, he's saying, well, God's timing is not like yours. And he goes into what is going to happen on that day and how we should live in light of it. But our hope is this new, what he calls new heavens and new earth, John picks up the same language, language in Revelation 21. This old earth and these old heavens will be put through fire, Peter says, burned up, and God will replace them with the new heavens and new earth where righteousness will live forever. There's, there's a continuity and a discontinuity here as well. And when this happens, you'll receive your resurrection body. So the resurrection body of Lazarus in John 11, it really wasn't a resurrection body. It wasn't because it wasn't made out of that same new creation material that yours will be made out of on the final day. And that's why Lazarus died. But the resurrection body of Jesus is made out of the material of that new creation, that future new heavens and new earth. You might say it's... it's made of the dust of the new earth. The risen body of Jesus is made up of matter from, the future, from a future world. So now, if you're, here's, here's the, the payoff. If you're united to the resurrected Jesus, the one that Mary's about to encounter, the one that John believes is real somewhere, though he hasn't seen him, you don't have to wait until the end of history to begin to experience the transforming power of that future new creation. If you want to experience that future new creation glory now, all you need to do is be united by faith to the resurrected Jesus. If you are united to him through faith, then you are in the new creation There's an already not yet aspect to this. You are a new creation with more to come, we could say. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We get to share in the new creation that Jesus is. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in Jesus, you already are a new creation with more to come. What's it mean then to be in Christ? What's it mean to be united to Jesus by faith? That's, those are phrases that I've used. It, it means to know and trust and have a relationship with the resurrected Lord. We could ask another question. What, what does that mean? How do I experience this new creation life, this new creation power that belongs to those who are united to Jesus in this way. After all, this risen Jesus that I, that I keep talking about, that the Bible points us to, he's ascended into heaven. He's not still on earth. We can't see him. So how can the transforming power of the risen Christ have anything to do with me? How can it affect me? This is the question 
that you could be asking whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. There's sort of a mystery there. there there's a real absence to Jesus. He's present, but he also, we don't see him the way we will, the way we, the way we will someday. But the answer, the deeper answer is that Jesus hasn't left us as orphans. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he sent us his spirit. He couldn't do that when he was on earth. But when he went to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. And those who believe in him are connected to Jesus through the ministry of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is also God, unites us to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He gives us the down payment that we will experience more resurrection, power, and joy in life to come. And the Holy Spirit uses means. He uses the word of God. He uses the bread and wine. He uses the waters of baptism. He uses the faces and the words of our brothers and sisters in Christ. He uses faithful preaching and teaching. The Holy Spirit uses all these means and others, prayer, devotions, to reveal God to you, to unite you to your risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ as you commune with him individually and corporately through the means he's given you. To experience this, you must simply believe. You must simply entrust yourself to this risen king to experience it more robustly christian with more joy you must simply believe more robustly lord i believe but help my unbelief that's the tension of the christian life i won't read the passages but you can go back and look at john 16 verse 7 and verse 13 where jesus tells his disciples before all this that he's going to send a comforter, his spirit, to be with them, to unite them to him, to lead them into truth. And God has already done that for us. And your relationship with Jesus through his Holy Spirit is not just an invisible and intangible thing. Yes, I... I, I was talking about the, the invisibility of Jesus, and then my answer was the, was the Holy Spirit, who's also invisible. But what I'm trying to help us see is the tangible, the physical ways that God, through, his, through Jesus and by the means of his Spirit, communicates to us, sanctifies us, encourages us, comforts us, loves us, delights in us. The Son of God is a physical, resurrected man who relates to you through physical means and one of the main ways God communes with you and reveals himself to you is through the physical people in the room with you now and and Christians outside this room as well God makes his presence known to you in part through the flesh and blood believers starting with the ones sitting on your right and your left in front of you and in back of you each of you is the face of God to your brothers and sisters in Christ. At the end of 2 Corinthians 3, I'm going to tie this back into our passage now. 
Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 3 that Moses put a face cloth on, on his face, a veil, to hide God's overwhelming glory. The, the people couldn't handle it. When Jesus was resurrected, the face cloth that hid his glory was removed. And now the fullness of resurrection life and joy and glory have been unveiled. I have to give credit to one of my sons, Riley, for this, for this point uh, that I'm going to develop a little bit here. We were re- I was reading the passage to the family during our family Bible time at the beginning of last week, and he asked, is there a connection between the, face, the veil, the face cloth of Jesus, and that of Moses? And I thought, well, that's a pretty interesting thought. And it uh, turns out there is, and even commentators have recognized that. So that's a good argument for reading Scripture with your kids. They, 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 teach you, they teach you things. They teach me things. The word John uses for face cloth is semantically related to the Greek word used to describe the veil, the face cloth of Moses in the Old Testament. And so I want to remind you of this, the application that Paul makes here in 2 Corinthians 3. He goes on to say that the glory we reflect as new creation Christians, the glory that we radiate because we are united to the glorious risen Lord, is even greater than the glory Moses reflected when he met God. Unlike Moses, our, our faces are unveiled, just as Jesus' face has been unveiled. The glory that dwells in us has been revealed, un- unveiled, exposed. Jesus, first of all, has unveiled it through his death and now resurrection. What this means is that you, that, that when you look into the face of your brothers and sisters in Jesus, you're looking at something more splendid, something even more magnificent, than the face that Moses had when he came down from God's presence. Now, how can this be true? That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. Well, it's, it's objectively true because the glory of the risen Christ lives in you and shines through you. And someday we'll be able to see this indwelling glory for all that it is. We'll see it in one another in all its fullness. But it resides in you even now. Today. Perhaps you're a believer, but it just doesn't feel as though God's joyful glory is radiating in and through you. If so, perhaps it's because you're stifling the glory and the joy of the resurrected Christ. Maybe it's because you're holding on to something, sin of of some kind. You're a believer, it's important to ask yourself whether people can see this glory, the glory of God, the resurrection glory in you. Is it is it visible in your countenance, in your demeanor? Make sure you're not trying to veil the glory inside of you that God wants you to reflect. The people of God, including the people in your own home maybe starting there, depend on seeing God's radiant glory in your face. Show it to them. Bless them in that way. Bless me in that way. 
Another very important way in which you commune with your resurrected Lord is by partaking of the, the physical bread and wine that we are about to eat and drink together. That's a meal made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Make sure not to downplay what God is doing in us and among us as a body and you individually at his table through these physical means. Bread and the wine. It's actually quite normal that God uses these physical means to communicate with us and to connect us to our resurrected Lord. If God can use the physical body that Jesus offered up on the cross, the one that he raised from the dead, the one that sits at his right hand in heaven, then surely God can use the physical bread, the physical wine, the waters of baptism that Jesus gives us. In John 20, verse 18, Mary announces, I have seen the Lord. So we we saw where John and implicitly Peter saw the good news. They didn't see Jesus, but they saw and believed. Now Now Mary sees Jesus. John's goal in writing this gospel is that we might see the Lord with the eyes of our heart. We we can't yet see him with, with these eyeballs, but we will see him We can see him with the eyes of our hearts. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the power, it's in the context of talking about the resurrection and the ascension, which should really be put together. That's one of the reasons I'm preaching this sermon is to see this whole event as one event, the death, resurrection, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the giving of his spirit as as one event, if you will. But Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the power of the resurrection enlightens the eyes of our hearts. That's what he calls it, the eyes of our hearts, so that we can see. Believing in the resurrected Jesus means seeing him. Believing is seeing. And when you see Jesus, your face will light up more than Moses' did. When you see your risen Lord, new life and new hope are breathed into your soul And that new life is seen on your face. When you see the resurrected Christ with the eyes of your heart, rivers of living water are poured into your heart to the point of overflowing. How could that overflowing out of your heart not show up in your countenance? There's no greater joy than seeing the resurrected Jesus, and you can see him. The resurrection of Jesus means we can hope without becoming insane. Because Jesus is risen and reigning, hope makes sense. It's rational. Even even our deepest brokenness is going to be resurrected in some way, as long as we're trusting in Jesus to do so. Every broken person, every broken marriage, every broken family, every broken friendship... Every sick body, every fractured church, every sad soul, every confused mind, every broken heart, every hopeless sinner can have hope in the resurrected Jesus. Every person, every situation, in all of creation, in all of time can have hope 
It's available because Jesus is not in the tomb, but on the throne right now. In Jesus, God overcame death, which means that in Jesus, anything can be conquered and all evil will be conquered. Most important, it means his death, his sacrifice on the cross really does wash away your sins. It really can wash away your sins and does if you believe in him. So put all your hope, all of it, in the resurrected Lord. If he is your fortress, if he is your comfort, if he is your consolation, you'll never be shaken. Even when it looks as though the story God is writing for you seems hopeless, seems impossible. Hoping in Jesus is dangerous, we might say, risky, we might say, but it won't drive you insane. It's not a move of insanity. Instead of driving you insane, it'll drive you all the way to that last day, that glorious day, when you will be made like him. Dying with Jesus in this life is the pathway to joy, both in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray and ask God to help us believe these promises. Oh God, we love you and we thank you. Our hearts are filled with gratitude because you have provided these promises, given these promises to us. You've accomplished in Jesus our salvation, our comfort. You've rescued us. And you've given us every reason to have joy, to shine like Moses, and even more so. May we believe it. May we embrace it. May we reflect your glory today, in this week, and the rest of our lives in new ways. Help us through your spirit who lives in us, who unites us to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.